This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, suicide, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. New Year's Day, 1925. Martha and William Rhodes mourn the loss of their 16-year-old daughter, Willa Rhodes. But Mother Blackburn tells them not to worry. She is the tree of life and will rise again soon. Her body is moved into a bathtub full of ice. Fresh flowers are laid on her frozen corpse. The Rhodes family sacrifices seven puppies and lays them to rest with their daughter. Then they wait. For 14 months, they wait for her to walk out of the bathtub on her own. And when she does, she will bring with her the angel of death and usher in the end of the world that Mother Blackburn has prophesied. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the founding and twisted theology of the Blackburn cult. This mother-daughter operation promised its followers immense power and wealth, but instead left many of their followers dead. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. The Blackburn Cult, known to believers as the Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Eleven was established in Los Angeles in 1922 by 41-year-old May Otis Blackburn and her 24-year-old daughter, Ruth Wieland Rickenbaugh Rizzio. 
At its peak, the cult had about 100 followers, most of whom lived and worked on the cult's 164-acre compound in Simi Valley, California. From 1922 until 1929, May Otis Blackburn and her daughter ran the cult and bilked their followers of more than $200,000, nearly $3 million today. Today, we'll learn how May Otis Blackburn grew so good at manipulation and delve into her so-called divine visions and her inexorable lust for wealth. Next week, we'll reveal the cult's darkest days, when loyal followers lost their lives, their wealth, and their children. May Otis Blackburn came into the world on August 2, 1881. She was born in Storm Lake, Iowa, to homemaker Jenny Otis and railway worker William Roswell Otis. From the start, May was an unusual child. She claimed to hear voices and other noises at a very young age, although she couldn't remember exactly when it started. The symptoms were likely brought on by grief over the loss of her father, William, who died in a railway construction accident when May was just four years old. May described her earliest hallucinations as the constant companionship of a spiritual dove. Many people interpret hallucinations as spiritual experiences or messages from God. Hearing voices is a surprisingly common sensory experience. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to psychological anthropologist and Stanford University professor Tanya Marie Lerman, about 10% of people admit to sometimes hearing voices when they're alone. Almost 40% experience unusual sensory phenomena when in a state between wakefulness and sleep, called hypnagogia. Either way, it's unlikely these voices were divine. After William's death, May's mother, Jenny, remarried to a farmer named Edgar Palmer Holt, this marriage also meant a move for the family to Huron, South Dakota. We don't know much about May's early childhood from this point on. According to the book Cult of the Great Eleven by Samuel Fort, in 1895, when May was 14, her mother and stepfather moved east to Minnesota to pursue farming. May next appears in public records in North Dakota, suggesting she may have been left out of the Minnesota move, although it's unclear who she would have been living with at the time. We do know that when May was 16, she married a Canadian man named John Wheland. Their wedding took place on October 3, 1897, in Jamestown, North Dakota. John and May then moved to Wapaton, South Dakota, possibly in search of mining work for John. Unfortunately, May soon learned that John was a compulsive gambler. His paychecks never made it home to his wife, and she became deeply anxious about money. May tried to hide money from John. But if he couldn't immediately lay his hands on cash when he was in the mood to gamble, John would become furiously angry with his young wife. They fought over money constantly. In 1898, 17-year-old May became pregnant with her only child, Ruth Angelina Wheland, which only added to the strain on her marriage. It was hard enough to support two people with John frittering away all of his income on gambling. Now they would have a baby to take care of as well. May was terrified of slipping into poverty. To make matters worse, John abruptly left the marriage halfway through May's pregnancy and moved westward, hoping to strike it rich as a gold miner. 
Soon after Ruth's birth on July 25, 1899, May received a letter that John Wheeland had been shot and killed in a dispute over a mining claim in California. Ruth would never meet her father. Shocked and devastated, May returned to Minneapolis. The newfound widow didn't feel capable of raising a child alone. She convinced her mother and stepfather to take in baby Ruth and raise the child as their own. While in Minnesota, May met a man named Rudolf A. Schultz, who quickly started courting her. The two were married in July of 1901. Rudolf knew May was a widow, but he had no idea that his young bride was also a mother. She told him only that she had a younger sister named Ruth, of whom she was terribly fond. Ruth was still being raised as the daughter of May's mother, Jenny, and stepfather, Edgar Holt. After May's marriage, Edgar and Jenny relocated to Washington State. But about a year after they left, May began to miss Ruth terribly. So she pressured Rudolph to move closer to her family. Rudolph agreed to move so May could be close to her so-called sister. In 1905, Rudolph and May arrived in Portland, Oregon. May was enthralled to be with her six-year-old daughter, Ruth, again. But little Ruth had already forgotten May entirely and had to be reintroduced to her sister. But May was happy with the reunion all the same, and the couple started settling into a new routine in Portland. Rudolph quickly found work as a waiter at the Oregon Hotel, earning $150 per month. According to Cult of the Great Eleven, May kept $125 from each of her husband's paychecks, leaving Rudolph just $25 to spend. He was so smitten that he didn't even try to resist May's total financial control. This was the first appearance of a talent that would become one of May's signatures throughout her life. She could convince almost anyone that their money was safer with her than in their own pockets. After her first husband left his family penniless, May must have been determined not to fall into poverty again. But her understandable anxieties about money turned quickly to greed. Rudolph's humble waiter salary wouldn't suffice for long. In 1906, 25-year-old May suddenly announced to her second husband that her first husband, John Wheeland, was still alive. She claimed to have learned this after receiving a strange letter signed by someone named John Worthy. May told Rudolph she was racked with guilt over living with a second husband when she had never been a widow after all. She left Rudolph immediately and announced her intention to return to John Wheeland. This supposed reunion between John and May didn't go smoothly, or at all. May never saw him again. She didn't go back to Rudolph either. It's likely the entire story was a lie, or a huge exaggeration of the truth. But either way, May saw herself as a free woman. In 1909, May was granted a divorce from John, giving up hope of finding him if she was even looking at all, and quickly found a new boyfriend, Portland lumber tycoon Fremont Everett. Fremont was married and extremely wealthy, and May made no secret of her attraction to Fremont's money. In one letter, she bluntly asked him about his net worth. He claimed it was around $250,000, about $7 million today. Fremont was generous with his mistress. He helped May purchase several apartment buildings in her name, a solid source of income for the divorcee. But there was another man who would have been happy to support May financially, 
Rudolf Schultz, her second husband. He continued to pursue her after learning that she'd formally divorced John Wieland. May addressed his affections by annulling their marriage in 1912. Later that year, May's stepfather, Edgar, suddenly died at age 62 from illness. Jenny, May's mother, remarried in 1913. Her third husband was Portland grocer Walter Blackburn. He brought to the marriage one son, age 12, named Ward Sitton Blackburn. May didn't think much of Ward Sitton Blackburn at first meet. But time would soon change that. For the time being, 34-year-old May married 27-year-old George Bloom on May 27, 1915. He was hardly a desirable partner, having been charged at least three times with contributing to the delinquency of a minor girl. It's unclear what exactly those charges allude to, but we can guess that George was contributing to teenage girls missing their curfews. What George did have to offer was the $3,000 he'd recently won in a lawsuit. May learned of his windfall in the local paper and began courting him shortly thereafter. The marriage didn't last. No documentation of the divorce survives, but in June of 1917, George Bloom described himself in official papers as single. Bilking men out of their money was no longer working as well as it once had for May. She was 36 now and had lived a stressful life. Her looks were fading. Ruth, on the other hand, was about to turn 18 and was stunningly beautiful. She had dark hair, elegant curves, and a head-turning smile. Like her mother, Ruth had occasionally heard strange voices from an early age. The voices sometimes recited poetry or sang songs to her. Many people think that hearing voices is a sure sign of schizophrenia, but research conducted jointly by Durham and Stanford universities shows that auditory hallucinations can be caused by a number of factors and can sometimes include positive and supportive messages. May and Ruth didn't hear the scary, commanding voices we see in Hollywood's depictions of mental illness. Their voices faded into the background of their lives, making no demands or requests of the women. In fact, both women came to like the companionship. Perhaps it was due to the poets and singers in her head that Ruth was so naturally drawn to performing. She danced ballet from a young age and loved to be on stage. And ever the opportunist, May hatched a scheme. If she could make Ruth a movie star, the two of them could live on Ruth's film earnings. May had saved a small fortune through managing the apartment buildings, purchased for her by Fremont. She made the risky decision to secretly finance two films starring Ruth, the feature-length A Nugget in the Rough and an accompanying short, The Tale of a Dress. May worked hard to attract publicity for Ruth's movies. She pitched every paper in town, highlighting that Nugget was the first feature film to be made in Portland, and her efforts paid off. With extensive coverage of the film appearing in the Sunday Oregonian, Portlandians were thrilled to learn that their city would soon see its first ever homemade feature film. The biggest theater in town was so excited for Ruth's debut that they installed a new $20,000 pipe organ just to play the score for Nugget in the Rough. Ruth was the talk of the town. Reviewers gushed over her performance, though perhaps more out of an Oregonian pride than any objective evaluation of her acting chops. But the expected calls from Hollywood didn't come pouring in. 
May had wowed Portland, but she hadn't minted a star. Even more depressingly, the two films only ran in one theater, and only for a week. Afterwards, the movie theaters returned to playing films that starred the big names of the day. May's fortune was gone, and she'd achieved nothing. That was when May decided that if Hollywood wasn't coming to Ruth, she would have to take Ruth to Hollywood. The two packed their bags and left for Los Angeles, California in 1918. Upon arriving in Los Angeles, Ruth auditioned daily, but could only find work as a background extra. May couldn't find a job either. Ruth supported the family by working as a taxi dancer and oriental dancer. Taxi dancers worked in groups in seedy dance halls that charged men a dime to enter. They called themselves dance instructors, but many taxi dancers earned most of their income from sex work. Oriental dancers, on the other hand, danced alone for the viewer's pleasure, wearing provocative, skin-bearing clothing. This occupation is what we would now call exotic dancing. Not only was it more exciting to Ruth than taxi dancing, it paid better. But while Ruth shimmied, May sank into a deep depression. She had spent her entire fortune, moved her daughter to Hollywood, and used all of her womanly wiles. Yet despite her best efforts, she was poor again. It was as if she had traveled back in time to her unhappy, penniless first marriage. And to make matters worse, May spent most of her days alone. Ruth left early in the morning to audition for acting roles and returned home late at night after her two dancing jobs. From dawn until very late, May sat in the same chair and pored over her Bible. May obsessively read and reread every word of the Bible. The characters from angels to prophets came to feel like old friends. And very soon, these friends would start speaking directly to her. In a moment, divine intervention shows May the path to newfound wealth. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. 1918 was a difficult year for May Otis Blackburn and her daughter Ruth. May spent most of the year locked in her apartment, studying the Bible, distracting herself from her financial woes. Ruth spent the year dancing in nightclubs and getting rejected, as she continued to audition for roles in films and on the stage. Also in 1918, Ruth met her first love, Edgar Jack Rickenbaugh, The two were married on May 27, 1919, when Ruth was 20 years old. Unfortunately, Rickenbaugh proved to be a jealous, abusive partner. By 1921, Ruth and Edgar separated, but neither of them could afford the fees for a divorce. In 1922, Ruth met a 26-year-old man from Indiana, Arthur Carl Osborne, in one of her dance halls. They began seeing each other. Ruth's first husband, Edgar, often made unannounced visits to her house and was still violently jealous about the activities of his estranged wife. 
So Ruth and Arthur had to use fake names to write their love letters. That way, if Edgar saw Ruth's letters, she could pretend they belonged to somebody else. Meanwhile, 41-year-old May remained a fixture in her reading chair. Her well-worn Bible was constantly in her hands or on her lap. By this point, she nearly had it memorized. One day in 1922, Ruth and May were home alone together in their apartment at 355 South Grand Avenue in Los Angeles. As usual, May was poring over her Bible. Suddenly, they both heard a powerful voice shout Ruth's name. It was a shock to both Ruth and her mother. They both heard voices and sounds wherever they went, but they'd never shared the same hallucination before. Then, in the middle of their Los Angeles apartment, appeared an enormous heavenly being. His glowing white wings and shining silver sword marked him immediately as one of God's angels. Ruth and May stood transfixed, each wondering if this vision could possibly be real. May, with her constant Bible study, recognized the heavenly presence immediately. Stunned by a combination of fear and awe, she knew this was the angel Gabriel. As the two women fell to their knees, Gabriel spoke. He told Ruth and May that they were the two witnesses chosen by God to announce the end of the world. This, of course, was a reference to Revelation 11.3, which reads, quote, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. Gabriel explained that as God's two witnesses, Ruth and May would receive various insights directly from Gabriel. They were to relay these messages to the world by writing a book titled The Seventh Trumpet of Gabriel. It was a vision that changed everything. It seemed to May like the long-awaited reward for her life as a believer and her many hours spent with the Bible. Here, at last, was the proof she was more than just a railroad worker's daughter with three failed marriages, one torrid affair, and two failed movies to show for her four decades of life. Gabriel began appearing to both women daily, demanding that they take dictation. A pile of parchment paper grew in the tiny apartment on South Grand Avenue, full of the angel's words. This story might seem outlandish, and it probably was, but shared hallucinations, while rare, are not impossible. Shared psychotic disorder, more commonly known as folie à deux, involves psychotic symptoms shared between two people with close emotional ties. This disorder is so rare there's no data on its prevalence, but a case study published in 2016 in the Journal of Mental Health and Human Behavior reported on a mother-daughter pair who shared the delusion of a man named X. Both believed this man was stalking the daughter and pretending to be her father. Of course, the other obvious possibility is that May and Ruth were perfectly sane scam artists who came up with a clever way to use May's encyclopedic Bible knowledge to get out of their impoverished circumstances. Whatever the case may be, they set to work transcribing their new theology immediately. Some of Gabriel's prophecies were beautiful. For instance, he explained that death had only come to exist because Adam and Eve broke a divine pump by eating from the tree of life. If the pump was restored, it would replace aging bodies with new ones and people would live forever. 
And soon, Gabriel promised, there would come an opportunity to fix this broken pump. The Earth and the entire universe would see the ravages of time reversed. The dead would be restored to life, vibrant and young again. Once death was defeated, the world would be ruled by a, quote, royal family of the chosen eleven. This family would consist of Ruth, May, and nine other queens, ruling the earth from marble palaces on Olive Hill in Hollywood. Each queen would also be granted an immense quantity of gold and gemstones, along with harems of 11 kings for each queen. Gabriel promised to include in his prophecies the locations of various hidden treasures located in the hills of California. The book he was dictating to the women would feature, quote, lost measurements that would lead May and Ruth to all the hidden gold and oil deposits in the world. The first thing Ruth did after her angelic visitation was talk about it with Arthur Carl Osborne, the boyfriend writing secret love letters to the still-married Ruth. Arthur was working as a ranch hand hours away in Santa Fe Springs. He missed Ruth sorely. Ruth asked Arthur for money to help her write the book, as dictated by Gabriel. She complained that she was in poor health and had to work with the flu. If she could just write this book, she would get better. She was sure of it. Arthur agreed to take out a loan to help her. Arthur was reassured that the seventh trumpet of Gabriel would sell millions of copies worldwide, so he would easily be able to make his money back. After all, Gabriel wanted everyone in the world to see these prophecies. Surely that meant God would deliver a spot on the bestsellers list. Not that Arthur would need the book's royalties, once Gabriel gave him and Ruth all the locations of the world's hidden gold and oil reserves. In exchange for his financial help, Ruth agreed to divorce Jack to be with Arthur. She started dancing again to get money for the divorce fees. But Arthur hated knowing Ruth danced with and for other men, especially since they were in a long-distance relationship. Ruth offered to stop dancing if Arthur could pay for the divorce. Arthur borrowed more money from his employer, the Sanchez Ranch. Ruth kept up her end of the bargain. She got divorced and quit dancing. Ruth soon told Arthur that this book would be longer than expected and that they would need more money than she had initially thought. She wrote in one letter to Arthur, quote, Arthur, dear, how did you come out about that loan you expected to get last week? If that friend of yours can possibly help us out now, you can assure him that you can loan him a thousand anyway by Christmas if he will need it, end quote. But Arthur's boss wasn't about to pony up again. Instead, he demanded that Arthur pay back his earlier loans, or he would be fired. Hoping for reassurance, Arthur demanded to see pages of the book. However, not a word was written. Arthur lost his job soon after. According to Cult of the Great Eleven, Arthur's infuriated father went to May and Ruth's apartment to demand his son's money back. Mr. Osborne repeatedly used coarse language with May, became hysterical, and even threatened violence. After the argument, May contacted Mrs. Osborne and threatened to kill Arthur if either he or his parents bothered May or Ruth again. An unemployed and broken-hearted Arthur enlisted in the army to get away from the mess. When he went to Ruth's address to say his goodbyes before boot camp, he found that she had moved and left no forwarding address. 
Arthur was the first person whose life was ruined by May Otis Blackburn and her beliefs, but he wouldn't be the last. Whether he knew it or not, when he decamped for the military, he got off easy. Next, May and Ruth garner a following and manipulate them for cash. Now, back to the story. By 1923, after spending the money from Arthur's loans, May and Ruth Blackburn returned to Portland to seek out more donors for what was still, at that point, a very strange book project. As May talked to more and more people about her visions, or delusions, she started developing a following that would eventually grow into the cult. She had a talent for making her wild ideas sound like groundbreaking scientific revelations. Back in Portland, May openly spoke to strangers about the voice of the angel Gabriel. She said the same angelic voice followed her as a child in the sound of white noise. This mention of white noise transforming into a clear angelic voice is highly suggestive of auditory pareidolia, a phenomenon in which people perceive voices in random noise, Auditory pareidolia is technically a form of hallucination, but according to Robert Ramez, a researcher from Columbia University, hallucinations aren't always suggestive of mental illness. Ramez says the difference is that healthy people will realize a strange sound is a hallucination, while people with mental illness may perceive it as real and intended. Whether or not May and Ruth really believed they were receiving messages from the angel Gabriel— they were certainly willing to use their growing following to their advantage. In search of legitimacy, they recruited college graduates and even a well-respected journalist to join the cult. The support of educated people helped them attract even more members. May honed her psychological manipulation tactics in Portland. The verbal skills that had once separated her second husband from his measly $150 paychecks were now convincing people to change their entire lives to follow her. Although May and Ruth claimed to receive their beliefs directly from Gabriel, the founding principles of their cult incorporated ideas from New Thought Christianity, one of the earliest movements towards the prosperity gospel. In other words, the belief that faith should and could lead to material wealth. Gabriel's prophecies of bursting jewel mines set aside for 11 queens were certainly in line with the prosperity gospel, but in some ways, May's beliefs diverged bizarrely from even other contemporary cults. One of May's strangest theories connected the Old Testament of Abram to Franklin Roosevelt. In her explanation, God changed Abram's name to Abraham, and the descendants of Ham were black, which is why God put Abraham Lincoln in office to free the slaves. The Lincoln penny was made of copper, and Roosevelt's boat, the Electra, was also made of copper. Thus, the two must be related. The line of reasoning was utter nonsense, and it's unclear why May even thought it was important in the first place, but her followers seemed to take it in stride. According to the book Nine Dimensions of Madness, insisting on a correlation between unrelated concepts could be a symptom of psychosis. A 2008 study published in Cortex concluded that, quote, perceiving meaning in randomness may be important factors in the formation of paranormal and delusional beliefs, end quote. May's bizarre prophecies appealed to enough people that she was able to secure 15 followers but she was in search of a bigger audience and more money. 
Her queens had 11 marble palaces to build, and this massive construction project required funding. Massive amounts of funding, and May knew exactly how to get it. In 1924, May and Ruth finally moved back to Los Angeles with about 15 followers in tow. At the time, there were over 400 cults in Los Angeles alone. There was an intense interest in new theologies building on Christianity. By the 1930s, Christian Science had 137,000 members, and 100,000 of them were women. May targeted Christian scientists in particular for recruitment due to the large female base in that movement. She reasoned that they would not be opposed to following a female spiritual leader. In fact, May's theology had a lot in common with Christian science, which teaches that complete healing may be accomplished by asking God for healing through the power of Jesus Christ. Christian science also incorporated principles of spiritualism, including the belief that death is an illusion and that the dead can be resurrected. Many believed the deceased founder of Christian science, Mary Baker Eddy, had raised the dead. Both spiritual healing and the defiance of death featured prominently in May and Ruth's developing belief system for their cult. Among the Blackburn cult's earliest followers, recruited in Portland, were Martha, William, and Willa Rhodes. The Rhodes family were Christian scientists. Martha was so serious about Christian science that she claimed on at least five occasions to have raised the dead herself. Martha and William Rhodes were accused cult leaders themselves. According to Cult of the Great Eleven, a rumor spread in Portland that the Rhodes had lost a son at age nine and tried unsuccessfully to resurrect him. Defeated, they buried him ritualistically in their front yard. May Otis Blackburn adored the Rhodes family. Most of all, she loved their beautiful teenage adopted daughter, Willa. On their very first meeting, May made Willa a priestess and queen of the order. But when May left Portland, Willa and her family didn't immediately follow. When May first returned to Los Angeles, she didn't have time to miss her favorite young queen too much. She was busy strategizing how to grow her following. One of her tactics? Ramp up the doomsday themes in her theology. Having noticed that the largest cults in Southern California seemed to make heavy use of apocalypse prophecies, May began hammering home her messaging about Passover, when humanity would pass from one world into the next. She added themes of a white messiah who would bring about this apocalyptic Passover. Indeed, this message did attract more followers. Beyond its doomsday themes, the cult had other strange aspects. When members joined, they would rub butter on their feet and eat alfalfa sprouts, According to a former cult member, R.J. Baudet, who wrote a novelized version of his family's account in the Blackburn Chronicles. No member was allowed to have a job outside of the divine order. Everything would be provided by May, including food and shelter. How did the recently indigent May provide for everyone's needs? Simple. To prove their loyalty, members renounced all sources of money from the material world, turning over their cash and paychecks directly to May. Cult members were ordered to place their money on the ground instead of handing it to May. May refused to touch any other human being besides Ruth. 
this touch phobia didn't appear to have troubled May in her youth. But by the time she started her cult in earnest, she couldn't abide touching anyone but her daughter. Fortunately, she was so gifted at manipulating her followers that this strange habit only made her seem more divine. She was literally untouchable. May gave each new recruit a new heavenly name. She believed when Adam and Eve took a bite from the apple in the Garden of Eden, the, quote, fall of mankind stripped humans of their heavenly nature. Having found their way to May, the cult members would be restored and returned to using their heavenly name given by the priestess, May. May's own name was the North Star, while Ruth's heavenly name was the Grand Royal of the Water of the Father's Blood. But rather than going by her heavenly name, May was most referred to as Her Heavenly Highness Queen May, the Heel of God, or Mother by most of her followers. The cult followed strict rules about food, as established by May. Apples, for instance, were the eye of God. Apples were present during the fall of man, so cult members were not allowed to consume them. This rule applied to anything with the word apple listed as an ingredient in a product, including old gold cigarettes, because the brand claimed its tobacco had been made in apple honey. Also forbidden, walnuts, because they created a wall between us. Hellman's mayonnaise was also off-limits because of the word hell in the title. T-bone steaks were not allowed because the T was a symbol of Christ's crucifixion. One can't help noticing that many of the foods May forbade, from steaks to sweets, were expensive luxury foods. Considering that May was paying for all of the cult's groceries, these supposed heavenly rules look more like budget shopping. May performed magic tricks to make her members think they, too, were beginning to hear the voice of the divine. Some of these tricks included seeing flashes of light, hearing voices that would appear from nowhere, doors closing without a person there, and objects disappearing randomly. According to Cult of the Great Eleven, some of these parlor tricks were organized by a con artist friend, Chester W. Burpo. When he wasn't secretly helping May, he also practiced as a faith healer and miracle worker. By this time, May Otis Blackburn was utterly shameless about her greed and selfishness. She was worshipped as a queen by her small following, and it had gone to her head. She went so far as to recruit her own stepbrother, Ward Sitton Blackburn, into the cult. May seduced Ward into the cult the same way she and Ruth had manipulated Arthur, with promises of wealth and power. In fact, she promised Ward the, quote, power and honor to print the seventh trumpet of St. Gabriel as his concord manifests the Little Dipper, which is the baby of heaven, under the North Star, the Word of God, end quote. This kind of incomprehensible metaphysical language became a Blackburn hallmark. When followers demanded to see pages of the book, they were shown a chest filled with heavy sheaves of parchment tied up in bundles. The top pages were full of metaphysical gibberish. The bottom pages were blank, but because the women refused to untie the bundles, their followers never knew that. Back to Ward Blackburn. His father, May's stepfather, Walter Blackburn, also received a pronouncement from May. He was offered, quote, the power and honor to publish the seventh trumpet of St. Gabriel, as his concord manifests the sense of taste having gone through the fire, 
end quote. In other words, Ward and Walter Blackburn were to be printers and publishers for May and Ruth's mysterious book, which of course they hadn't actually written. But Walter didn't know that when he sold his grocery store for $30,000 and invested the proceeds in a printing shop in Los Angeles. May was careful to ink a royalty agreement that guaranteed her a share of the proceeds from her books after expenses were deducted and $5,000 per month was donated to the cult's treasury. Just a little something to tide her over until her personal gemstone mine was revealed by Gabriel. The only thing missing from May's new life as a self-ordained queen was a partner to call her own. Bizarrely, she found someone to fill that void in the same place she found a printer for her book, her own family. May began a romance with her 23-year-old stepbrother, Ward. Ward was almost two years younger than Ruth, May Otis Blackburn's own daughter. He was also strikingly ugly, with a Fu Manchu mustache and ill-fitting clothes that he often didn't wash for weeks. Worst of all, he was known in the Portland community to be attracted to children. He hadn't been arrested for his predilections, but it was apparently widely discussed that mothers were to keep their kids away from Ward. Disgusting as that is, it might have been part of what May saw in him. Ward wouldn't want a physical relationship with May, who by this time could not possibly tolerate sexual contact with a man due to her worsening touch phobia. And May herself was known to openly admire the beauty of young girls, although it's unclear whether she ever made sexual advances. Whatever her rationale, May wanted to marry her stepbrother, and marry him she did on January 11, 1924. May used an assumed name for the marriage and gave her age as 30 rather than her real age of 43. With her mother a newlywed, Ruth wanted a new husband too. May and Ruth had recently moved into a house at 830 Acacia Street, which served as the Blackburn cult's first official headquarters. It also brought Ruth into a new neighborhood with a new assortment of eligible bachelors. At some point during the founding years of the cult, Ruth divorced Edgar Jack Rickenbaugh. The exact date was not preserved. But by the time she returned to Los Angeles, Ruth was a free woman. At 25, Ruth was strikingly beautiful, even more so than before. Now that she carried herself with the regal bearing of a prophet and a queen, she soon had a new suitor, Sammy Rizzio. The Italian-American was only 17 years old, but had already served time in prison for check fraud. According to Cult of the Great Eleven, Sammy came from a family involved with the Black Hand, a crime syndicate mostly made up of Italian immigrants. Sammy's father was wanted by authorities for a triple homicide, like Ruth's previous husband, Edgar, Sammy was jealous, mercurial, and sometimes violent. That was apparently what Ruth was looking for in a man. She married Sammy Rizzio on May 24, 1924. The Rizzio family embraced Ruth and invited her to visit them often. They even accepted her strange religion. The Blackburn family wasn't as kind to Sammy. May and her followers treated him like an unwanted appendage especially because he maintained his Catholic beliefs after marrying Ruth. He refused to partake in cult rituals. His temper was also a problem. He was terribly jealous about Ruth, who had many male admirers and was anointed a high priestess of her cult. 
she adopted the new moniker of the Royal Warder of the Purple Robes and dressed more provocatively than Sammy wished her to. Sammy demanded that Ruth leave the Great Eleven and renounce her place as a queen. She refused, making relations tense between the couple. They argued constantly until finally, in July of 1924, Sammy struck Ruth in the head and stormed out of the house. When he returned home later that day, Sammy found his way barred by May and other cult members. They would not allow him back in the house. After that day, Ruth never saw her husband again, but May did. Enraged by Sammy's treatment of her daughter, May summoned the cult's druggist, Eleanor Sandrosky. After swearing Eleanor to secrecy, May flatly explained that the angel Gabriel had ordered May to kill Sammy Rizzio. She demanded that Eleanor mix her a potent poison. Horrified, Eleanor refused. She left May's home in shock. Eleanor was relieved to be allowed to depart, but a month later, she was summoned again. This time, May insisted. She said she only needed the poison as a symbol. Sammy would sprinkle the poison around himself in a symbolic ceremony of his death. This would allow Sammy to kill off his old self and have a fresh start with Ruth. Eleanor provided May with a bottle of chloroform, which was legal. She also gave May a bottle of colored water, telling her it was a potent, illegal poison. Before May could discover that this was a lie, Eleanor and her husband escaped and quit the cult. May took Sammy to the beach in Santa Monica, where they were to perform his symbolic death ceremony as punishment for his behavior. As Sammy shouted ten times, I am a dead priest, May poured out the liquid from the bottle into the sand. Sammy was well enough after the ceremony to drive home, but after that night, he was never seen again, likely chloroformed and subsequently killed by May. May told her members that Sammy left in exile. Soon, Sammy's mother, Frances Rizzio, grew concerned. Frances sent multiple letters to May and the Divine Order in search of her son. The letters were unanswered. Finally, Frances sent a letter to Ruth and May directly. May responded with the self-imposed exile story again, adding this time that Sam had left a written letter, his suitcase, a $20 bill, and some of his clothes behind. One of Sammy's younger brothers, Frank, showed up to investigate. May showed Frank the letter that Sammy had left. Frank, suspecting forgery, decided to stay and spy on May. Frank volunteered to be her chauffeur, a bold move for a man dealing with his brother's likely killer. After 10 months of working for May without discovering his brother's fate, Frank finally allowed his mother to contact May again, this time threatening to report her son's disappearance to the police. The Rizzio family soon received a visit from a policeman. Instead of helping them, he warned them not to meddle with May Blackburn's affairs. The policeman, it turned out, was a member of May's cult. Despite their mob ties and triple murderer patriarch, the Rizzio family had met their match. They stopped looking into Sammy's disappearance. Sammy was almost certainly the first person to die for May's ambitions, but he would be far from the last. A storm was gathering within the cult. The promise of the seventh trumpet of St. Gabriel was still unfulfilled. 
The cult's members, who turned all their funds over to May, were growing impatient. May had promised her followers infinite wealth and eternal life, not in the afterlife, but in this lifetime, a result of divine prophecies straight from the angel Gabriel, which May had not yet delivered. Soon, May's true nature would come to light. But would her followers turn their backs on her or dig in deeper to protect the woman they called Mother? Next week on Cults, we'll explore the cult's peak, its dramatic fall, and the unexpected figure who brought down a self-proclaimed prophetess, but not before she had the chance to kill again. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with part two of the Blackburn Cult next Tuesday. You can find more episodes of Cults as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Cults is written by Taylor McNulty and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.